Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scott's Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great And this week our guest is Paddy Agnew. Paddy's a journalist based in Italy who covers Serie A and the Vatican. Uh, thanks very much for coming on, Paddy. Well, very good to be here. Thanks very much for having me on. Yep, thanks for joining us, Paddy. So we're looking at a copy of Shoot from the 4th of April 1981. So we'll start off just by having a wee look at the cover. And uh, on the cover, it's a picture of uh, Liam Brady sipping from a bottle of water in a Juventus shirt with a gold chain hanging around his neck. And uh, the headline is Italy Worships Brady. Uh, Above the shoot banner is £5 million transfer scoop, Luton Town team group, the other side of Maradona and Ray Clements on the League Cup final replay. And uh, the cover price is 25 Pence, anything to pick out there from that cover? Uh, well, absolutely. My, first, I should say this. I've been in Italy since 1985. So Liam got here uh, four years before me. Mm. Um, actually, five years before me, uh, um, because he was here in, in 19, at the end of the 1980 season with Arsenal. But he, um, when you say... Uh, Italy worships Brady, or is it, I think that's what it's saying in the, yeah. the head. Yeah. Uh, it's absolutely true. I mean, um, I remember, yeah, just this is the sort of situation which I, I can only tell you stories because there are plenty of them <laughs> involved with Liam. But I mean, uh, in 1994, Liam came down to uh, Napoli, to, to Naples, for uh, an Italian uh, World Cup warm up game. Uh, Italy against Germany or something like that, I think. And it was just a friendly, but uh, he came down as, as the Italian expert to do something for the BBC. And I saw, him, I saw him the next morning after the match. We were both sort of walking along the the, the seafront in, in Naples, which is a lovely place. Uh, and I said, let's have a, I haven't talked to you for a long time. Let's have a, a cup of coffee. So we nip, nip into uh, this uh, very fashionable bar. We sit down, but... I got very little chat with, uh, I was there for about an hour and a half with Liam. I got very little chat out of him because our conversation was interrupted every two seconds by somebody coming up to him and saying, Oh, Brady, fantastico, non ti visto per tanto tempo, che grande giocatore. And, and, you know, Brady was somebody who had, uh, whose reputation was sky high when he came to, after his first two seasons in Italy. And he was, uh, he was a quality player uh, and the sort of quality player who could fit into what was then the best club football being played anywhere and he fitted in really really well and it's not for nothing that uh, you know I mean, I'm sure a lot of people know this but 
the Juventus team that he played uh, basically was three quarters of the side that won the 1982 uh, World Cup in Spain. Uh, and uh, you know he, he played with them for the last two uh, two years. And that, that that was the level that he was immediately at, and felt very comfortable at. And they looked to him as uh, you know not just that thought this is a useful lad to have, but this is actually the the, the perfect uh, uh, leader for us. And he wouldn't have he would have stayed at Juventus probably for uh, quite some number of other seasons, except that the Juventus owner who in those days was the legendary Gianni Agnelli, the avocado, uh, the owner of Fiat, uh, who had a particular enthusiasm for Michel Platini. And off his own accord, without telling anybody, he, he hopped off to France and signed up uh, Platini before the end of the, the season. And uh, even though, you know, Brady had played two seasons, won two championships with them, uh, the he had to go because in those days you could only have two foreign players per uh, uh, Serie A team, and he had to make way for uh, uh, Michel Platini. And um, I know it was a uh, like uh, for Liam it was uh, very disappointing because he'd done so well, uh, and he he Bonipetti, the legendary uh, former Juventus striker, the guy who. Um, in those days, was the, the, the team manager. He uh, called me uh, uh, team manager, the commercial manager. I mean, uh, he called him, uh, he called him up and he told him, Look, Lee, you better come around to the house. I need to, there's something I'm going to need to tell you. And he got him around the house and said, Look, Liam, uh, Agnelli's gone, but Platini, you're out. And um, Bonaparte said, The two of us sat there for a while and we just cried. We just cried because I mean I thought Liam was such a great player and Liam was getting on so well. So it was, it was so. What I'm saying is that Brady was a big figure in Italian football. Yeah. There's a question: Did he come? Did they know what they were expecting? What they were going to get in Italy, or was it a case of he came over and then they were surprised? So do you know? No, I was the the the, the general public didn't know. Hmm. Obviously. You know, um, I remember I spent a week with Liam uh, at uh, when he was at Arsenal, uh, and uh, just about two months before the end of that season when he was going to Italy, I remember talking to uh, uh, Don. What was it? Don Howe? Was that what he called Don Howe, the the great coach at Arsenal in those days? And uh, you know, he was he said that the 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 Juventus. Scouts and the people who looked at, at Brady were very excited about him, but the the um, the vast majority of the public didn't have a, 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 really didn't have a have a uh, didn't know much about him. Remember, yeah. this is this is nineteen eighty. Uh, it's pre uh, satellite TV. It's pre internet. It's pre uh, mobile phones. It's a long time ago. So you didn't see much uh, activity, and you certainly didn't. You see, you only saw a few uh, grainy, often black and white images of mm. uh, football that wasn't being played in, in in Britain and Ireland. If you lived in Britain and Ireland, that is. Yeah. So uh, they didn't know what they're going to get, but when they got them. It took them about 10 seconds to work out. This guy is a fucking gift to us. Yeah, yeah. This guy is really going to be good because A is, you know, it's a left-sided player is always a great thing uh, from 
from Brady to Maradona and back again. Uh, and uh, they hadn't got a player in that position in the Juventus team. But he was also a player who could do... Liam could do anything. I mean, Liam could make the ball sing and he could make the ball talk. He could make, he could, he was very, very good player. And on top of that, uh, one of the things that uh, people always say, always, I've always, Italians have always said to me about Liam, uh, something that, uh, you know, I wouldn't have thought of uh, because I, you know, I came here in 1985. I wasn't, uh, I didn't see it happen. But at the end of that season, when he already knew that, Agnelli had bought Platini that he was on his way out and the very last game of the season he had to, uh, he opted to take the penalty which won Juventus the uh, league championship that year and, and lots of Italians <laughs> said you know it's amazing that he took that I and mean, if it was anybody else who would have deliberately missed it they would have been so pissed off for the club <laughs> but I mean you know obviously Liam was a fantastic professional and uh, uh, the fans loved him for that as well mm. So if we go into the first two pages, and so pages two and three are all about uh, Liam Brady at Juventus, yeah. yeah, and uh, a few a few comments there from his teammates at the time about what a good what a good player he was, yeah, uh, and uh, the statement then it says uh, Giovanni Trapattoni, the Juventus manager, had Brady at the top of his list when the Italian FA decided last year to open the frontiers yeah. to one foreign player per club. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, he was, uh, he was, the. you remember uh, the thing about Italian football was that there was a period from uh, after the war to uh, 1980 when they didn't, when they had a couple of setbacks at international level. They decided with far too many foreign players, far too many Argentines, Brazilians, let's uh, close the doors. And they closed the doors. So there were, were no foreign players, but they reopened the doors in 1980. And you had, um, you know, uh, a whole, you had just a small number of players. Um, I think the first season was just one, and second season it was two uh, per team, you know. Uh, and, you know, it was people like uh, Ruud Kroll, the, the great Dutch defender, um, Zico, uh, God, I can't remember any of those off the top of my head, but they were the best that was available at the time. And they were the sort of players who in today's football world would be heading to the Premiership. Mm-hmm. So uh, is there anything there, uh, Andy, you, any wee quotes you've seen there from those two pages of his teammates talking about him? Read, read me some of the quotes, lads, because you've got me uh, at a disadvantage here. I, don't ha- I can't read it off, <laughs> off the screen. <laughs> and I, I haven't got the uh, quotes here in front of me. Read, read me a couple of them. So uh, Trapattoni says, I knew Liam was very, very good. Now everybody agrees. Some of my assistants were not so sure. They were afraid that the challenge, the change would prove too much for him and that he could not cope with the difficulties and the style of Italian football. But he settled down in the best and fastest way possible. And he is already in every sense one of us. That's That's great. That's a a great quote. That's a great quote. That's a great quote to start with. Because um, remember... uh, if there's one nationality that has not been very successful in Italian football uh, over the years, it's nationality. I mean, the, the Anglophonic uh, British football representatives, because that's what Brady was seen as he was coming from Arsenal. Uh, you know, um, the, the late Jimmy Greaves, who, who, who's just died recently, I mean, he was... Uh, uh, we all know he was a wonderful striker, scored goals all the time, but he couldn't settle down at all in uh, Italian football. And he, he had a sort of run between 
uh, autumn and Christmas at AC Man, then went home and signed for Spurs. Uh, and that was what, when, when Trapattoni says there uh, that uh, his... Uh, his assistants were worried that Brady mightn't adapt to Italian football. I think they were, what Trapattoni was talking about was they were worried that he might ad- adapt to Italian life, Italian culture, uh, Italian language, food, etc. And uh, not, I don't think any, they were really much worried about his technical ability because he was so outstanding. And then the thing about Liam was he's a smart guy. Uh, always was a smart guy. And he, you know, he very quickly said about learning Italian. He still speaks very good Italian, uh, and he, he settled into living in Italy with a lot of enthusiasm, uh, and he still has, uh, you know, he's still very attached to Italy, and, and he looks back in his Italian days with with um, with with, with uh, you know great fondness. Let me tell you one thing about Liam that uh, when I eventually got to to Italy, uh, and I, I came here without any work organized you know i came here i was a really uh, a relatively experienced journalist uh, and uh i'd already done quite a bit of uh, football journalism uh, but uh, um I, when i got here I, my contacts i you know i started off in journalism in ireland uh, with with the, the mcgill magazine and the sunday tribune in dublin so my contacts were all with ireland so to begin with i mean i worked down for for a while with everybody else from the economist to the gardening but that's another story uh, but uh, the uh, it was obvious to me that the first thing i would have to do when i got to uh, Italy was to make contact with Liam and to, uh, you know, uh, but he was he was going to be, uh, the, the one gig I had at the time was I, I was writing two columns a week for the an Irish evening newspaper, the evening press. Uh, and so it was pretty important to get in contact with Liam. So I was here about uh, two weeks uh, when Italy, uh, uh, when I got the first chance to go to a match that he was playing in, it was because by this stage he was playing for Inter. Uh, and uh, they um, uh, they were playing. They were due to play Pisa, who were in the uh, in the first in the set in Serie A in those days. Uh, and I thought, well, that'll be a chance to go up there. I'll go up there and see if I can get hold of uh, Liam. So I went up for the match, and the match turned out to be a disaster for uh, Inter and a famous day for Pisa because Pisa won. <laughs> they won one nil, and. Um, uh, anyway, I was hanging around after the match in in what passed for a, a press room. Well, it wasn't much of a press room uh, in the, the Pisa Stadium, and it was a little stadium it is. And um, there were no sign of uh, no sign of any players being brought. No sign of any press conference. And um, I eventually, in my in those days, very halting Italian, tried to find out from my colleagues what was happening. And they said none of them seemed to know. And then consensus was that nobody was going to come out for a press conference. So I thought, well, geez, lads, I've come all this way. I need to see Liam. Uh, so I'll, um, I am, it's amazing that I would think of doing this because you couldn't do it these days. I thought to myself, well, I'll go around to the other side of the stadium uh, to the team boss. And I walked around to the other side of the stadium. There was the team boss. And there was a couple, there were a couple of cops there, but there were, there were no sort of crowd barriers around. And I walked up to the team bus and Karl-Heinz Rummenigge uh, was the, uh, the centre forward for international station. He was standing on, uh, on the steps 
and I knew I knew who he was. I knew he'd speak English. I said to him, uh, and I said, can I, can I uh, sorry to bother you, I want to speak to Liam Brady. I'm an Irish journalist. Um, is he on the bus? And Roman <laughs> laughed at me. And he then, he, he leaned back and he shouted down the bus. He, and he said, what's your name? I said, Paddy Agnew. I said, he said, Liam, there's a family here called Paddy Agnew. Wants to talk to you. <laughs> and uh, Liam said, oh, yeah, let him on. So he, 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 he stands back and I get up onto the bus and walk down the, the aisle of the bus to where Liam's sitting. And Liam looks at me and he shakes his head and he says, Paddy, you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be on the bus, you know. <laughs> and uh, I'll finish that story because I, I was at uh, one, one of the great indulgences my, my wife allows me uh, uh, every now and again is to go to the Cheltenham Festival, the, the horse race meeting. And uh, I was at it uh, two years ago, um, pre-COVID times. And, and I met Liam, who I hadn't seen for years. And uh, uh, Liam looked at for a second. He didn't quite realise who it was. And then he looked at me. And then he smiled at me and said, Paddy, get off the bus. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> however, yeah. he, Liam was a terrific source of information on those days. He told me all sorts of stuff. And, uh, you know, um, he was, uh, I mean, I, I, I haven't had access to a player of that quality uh, almost ever since in, in, at the same level, you know, because, you know, I could talk to him anytime. He'd tell me all sorts of things. I mean, one of the things that Tom and I, when we're doing lots of these shoot magazines, that we notice is that in interviews and columns, they're very forthright and they're very open, you know, players and managers about what they say. Was was Liam the same then? Was he was he quite open with you or was it a case of because he He was very you? open with me because yeah. he uh, eventually got to know me and knew that I wouldn't say and I shouldn't say. Mm. Uh, but he told me things which he couldn't print and I didn't print. Mm. Um but uh, on the record, Liam was very careful. Yeah, he was very sensible. He, you know, the the in those days it was it's, this was the Hollywood of football, and uh, the pressure was huge. And you know, you could start around out of nothing, uh, and you well, you still can. You know, yeah. it's, it's 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 worse now, obviously, in the in the in the world of social media. Uh, and the pressure on players in the Premiership, it must be pretty, uh, pretty tremendous. But Liam was aware of it, in the, even in those days, and days when they, your uh, local TVs and um, yeah, local TVs and and and, and, the, and the the daily sports papers were actually your biggest pressure. But he was careful not to say anything stupid. Mm-hmm. What well, one of the the interesting things from the article, Tom, that I pick out is he's talking about being prepared. For coming to Tetley, he knows it's going to be hard because of the experience that um, Kevin Keegan had in Germany. So he's, you know, you you mentioned Paddy about how he's, he's an intelligent man. So he's he's coming prepared. He's he, he's looking at what what's happening with other um, British players abroad, and he's taking that on board rather than just, you know, maybe an example you could give is like Ian Rush who went unprepared and yeah. totally yeah. blinkered as to what the experience was going to was going to bring for him. So I think that's quite quite interesting that he's he's taking the Kevin Keegan scenario and saying 
right, okay, I've got to be prepared for a hard time like he's had I in remember, Germany. No, I read, I mean, I read this article, I can't read it properly here, but I did read it when you sent it to me. Mm. And uh, I thought that was a very interesting thing because uh, Liam never, had never said that to me, but he was obviously uh, aware of the difficulties. Uh, and I was, I'm sure uh, the Jimmy Greaves experience uh, mm. didn't go wild. I'm sure he was aware of how yeah. that went wrong. I mean, the thing about Ian Rush and Jimmy Greaves, um, about both of them, is that they, their failure, their uh, had difficulty adapting to uh, a different place. I mean, you know, I, I know I, the, there's a, a legendary quote from Ian Rush, which I'm not sure how much, how true it is, but it's certainly emblematic of his experiences. He said that, you know, being in Italy, it felt like being in a foreign country all the time. You know, uh, and he was Ian Rush was also a bit like in football, as we all know. What really matters is that the, the results go your way, and you can put up with all sorts of things. Yeah. Results did not go uh, Ian Rush's way. He wasn't in a nearly as good a Juventus team as uh, Liam had been in, uh, and uh, that made his year. That made his his his. Um, short what he was two years in Italian football it made it very difficult for him uh, and uh, you know he then he'd, he'd other problems like you know he'd to be uh, trying to put petrol in the car uh, and you know he couldn't work out the language and he kept on putting he put I think he put diesel in a petrol car at least three times in his first two months you know in mm. in, in uh, Turin things like that that uh, they're small things but um Bonnie Berti uh, thought he'd cheer him up by ordering him a, a couple of crates of uh, Welsh beer uh, at one point. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure whether that really did cheer him up. Yeah. But, but, he, but the, the worst thing was that he just wasn't playing in a good team. Or it wasn't his fault. Was, mm. you know, if the team isn't playing well, there's not an awful lot the striker can do about it. I guess nowadays like, um, foreign players that come in would be looked after to a huge degree. You yeah. need to have people to, yeah. to do these things, which maybe wasn't the case back then. No, I think that's absolutely true. There wouldn't wouldn't have been the same level of detail the players were left to get on with it themselves to a certain extent. And and the uh you know, um the the, the problem was they hadn't been, they had had closed borders for so mm. long, so they weren't used to having foreign yeah. players. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, uh the the very good ones, obviously. Uh, were uh, most and, and Ian Rush was a very good player, no question about that. Mm. But he was a bit unlucky. But most of the most of the good ones and you're talking about uh, uh, Brady, Platini, Maradona, players like that. They they didn't have any bother adapting to Italian football. Yeah. And was it a surprise when he, he chose to go back to England and move to West Ham? Ah, well, he was at the end of his his time in Italy. Then I mean, he ha- after he. Um, uh, after after they bought Platini, he had to leave uh, Juventus. He, he 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 signed up for Sampdoria, who were a uh, newly promoted team, and or a team who eventually won the league in 1991 and who uh, uh, played some very good football. And he played and Liam played some very good football for them too. Um, and then he had uh, two seasons with Inter, but by the end of that was so he had six seasons. By the end of that period. Um, his star was a bit in the way, not because he wasn't playing well, he was still playing well, but he, he had a couple of, he had, one, he had a, at least, I think at least one bad knee injury that messed him up. And he ended up then going to Askeley. And Askeley were uh, 
another of those newly promoted sides that were up and down between Serie A and Serie B. And he had a fairly uh, rocky time there in the sense that you know, the club's finances were a bit funny. I don't think Liam ever got paid for the, any wages by Ashley, for example. So, uh, and he got fed up with all that and packed up and headed off to West Ham, where at least he thought he'd get his wages. And do you think he should maybe have made a bit more of a success as a, as a manager? I know, obviously, the spell up here um, in charge of Celtic, but would you would you have seen him as more successful as a, as a manager or as a coach? I don't know. Liam, um, I remember he told me once after he'd been, uh, after he coached Celtic, uh, that he'd been a failure as a manager. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised, uh, but he, but I think he sort of Liam felt, uh, and, and he's my, he's very happy now. And well, at least when last I heard of him, he was coaching the young uh, youngsters at the Arsenal. Yeah, and he, he he was very happy with that. He's I would you would have thought with the 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 footballing head he had, the football intelligence that he had, that he would have been uh, yeah. a very capable manager. But I don't know. It's it's it's. Um, You'd have to ask. Uh, you'd have to ask everybody from uh, Ancelotti to Jurgen Klopp and back again what it is to uh, what it's required to be a manager. But uh, uh, obviously, at certain points, you have to be able to. Uh, you have to be able to exercise the type of authority over players uh, that requires a lot of. Um, you know, uh, it requires a harder, a harder mentality than Liam uh, have Liam. Probably, probably was too decent a person to kick ass in the way maybe you should kick ass. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we turn the page, uh, I know it's part of the article was written by Giancarlo Galavotti. Was he a, a journalist you you were aware of in, in Italy? Yeah, well, Giancarlo used to be the, the Gazette of Sportsman in London. I knew Giancarlo very well. He uh, he was very interested. Um, as the London correspondent, he was very interested in the whole Brady deal while he was still an Arsenal player. So he followed Liam Burry closely. Uh, and I would see him every now and again. Uh, in uh, Actually, I'd only ever see him when we got to World Cups and European Championships. He'd, be, he'd, be, he'd, t- he'd turn up then. But um, he was a very knowledgeable guy, a writer. Uh, all right, Andy, we, we go over the, over the page. So it's quite an interesting uh, article here on page four. So there's a wee bit here about Coventry City, which is Coventry plan for brighter soccer. Uh, and this is uh, Coventry City are preparing to launch plans to brighten soccer for their loyal supporters. They are imposing a ban on players passing back to the goalkeeper and will issue instructions to goalkeeper Les Seely to abandon the three-step rule. Manager Gordon Milne explains... As from now, we shall we shall operate both plans in central league matches at Highfield Road and hopefully take the fear and the boredom out of the game. Uh, if it's a success, and there's no reason to doubt it will be, I would like to think that we might introduce it in a first division match before the season ends. Milne believes fans are frustrated when players pass back. It's killing the game, he says. I thought that was really interesting. This is 1981, so more no, than a decade before. The... Was, they were ahead of the times, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, they, they, essentially it was the 1990 World Cup, Italian Levanta, that killed off the pass back. Mm-hmm. You, I, I don't know how much of that World Cup any of you guys saw, but it was it was a World Cup that there were some interesting games in it, but there were some horrors in that yeah. one. And the final, uh, Argentina, uh, West Germany, 
was possibly the worst uh, World <laughs> Cup final of modern times. Mm. And one of the reasons was that, you know, both sides both sides were spent a lot of time passing back to the goalkeeper. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I say that um, in my personal um, opinion, the, the change to the passback law has been the, the best change in my lifetime, the best change to football. Because it, it just... Yeah. It just absolutely changed it all for the better. No, it turned, it turned football upside down. You're absolutely right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and it completely revolutionised the, the the role of the go- the goalkeeper, as we all know. Yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it seems as though they're trying to have that sort of um, same effect every single season with, you know, <laughs> tinkering with laws all, all the time. And it's like, yeah, I, I keep saying this as well. You know, we should change things when they need changing. They, they change things all the time and I just don't, it's like people question why we need to change it. Um, the pass back thing needed to be resolved, needed something to be done and now it seems as though every season they've got a quota of things that they need to change which is ruining the game for me. Well, yeah, well, yeah but obviously, I mean, in, in the age of VAR, things are, 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 there are decisions happening every game that you watch that are just staggering. Uh, I mean, Take this week's Champions League game. Uh, did any of you see, uh, who was it? It was uh, Wolfsburg and Seville. Seville get, got a late penalty uh, in a game in which Wolfsburg had, uh, had been by far the better team. Uh, uh, they got a late penalty. But, I mean, it's, it's, it was, uh, uh, you know, a, a defender tried to tried to tackle a guy in the area he slightly missed his tackle he hit the fellas he hit he didn't hit he just touched the fellas boot that's mm-hmm. all and the fellas still made his pass the pass still went to uh, a Seville teammate but um uh, the referee gave a, a, a you know gave a penalty uh, and, and it was one of a, a number of different penalties like uh, the Milan penalty in their game uh, against Atletico Madrid uh, you know, there are a lot of there. You're in a situation now where uh, there's so much VAR. Uh, referees are under seem to be under so much pressure that they just give penalties. You know, they give penalties. Mm. For example, let me say one thing. The, the, I was talking to somebody who used to play for Lazio just today. This this guy actually works in my bank, mm. uh, and uh, I was in the bank this morning. I was talking to him, uh, and we were we uh, when I'm in there. I'm, doing whatever I have to do, we always have a, a resume of how things are going. And we talked about the Champions League game. And uh, he was saying something that, you know, I think a lot of players feel, um, that the handball, the penalty handball ruling that VAR creates, is just mad. That You know, the idea that... You, that a penalty, a, it doesn't have to be a deliberate handball. The idea that there's no voluntaria, uh, you know, it's not, you don't do it meaningfully uh, and deliberately. Uh, that, 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 that uh, you know, somebody can be standing a meter away from you, blast the ball at you, hit your hand, and that's a penalty, for God's mm-hmm. sake. That isn't a penalty. Never was a penalty, never will be. Uh, you know, a handball has to be deliberate. You have to, you know, to stop the ball going to the net or whatever, but it's it's not because somebody blasts the ball at you and, and you bang into it. Hmm. But I mean that that's that that's you know just what you're saying. You've you've tinkered with 
rules and regulations so much that the ref, uh, referees are uh, erring uh, too much on the the uh, uh, on the unsafe side because mm. it's not the safe side. Yeah, I agree with you. When you're saying that they'll, they'll blow for a penalty or something. I think it's it's made them. I'm not. I don't know about lazy is the word, but maybe they play it safe because they know they don't have to make a decision because if if it was a penalty, VAR's going to stop it. And so it, it just... It, it, the same skills that aren't there for, for referees and linesmen, they, they lose. I mean, you see with linesmen as well, they don't put their flag up. They wait, they wait, they wait, and then they put their flag up. And it's like, well, listen, if you're that sure about it, put your flag up. Don't wait for for something else to happen. And, you know, the fact is, they're probably being told not to do that, but that information's not getting out to everybody. So, I mean, we, we Well, linesmen certainly have been told not to do it, haven't they? They've been yeah. told to wait for the action to finish before they, they pull up, mm. uh, put up the flag. That's There's a logic to that. Yeah. But I, I do think what you're saying there is right, that, uh, uh, you know, what you say, call it playing on the safe side, as far as I'm concerned, it's playing on the unsafe side because yeah. it's just, you know, too many referees saying, uh, well, I'll, uh, I'll, 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 I won't take responsibility for this and we'll wait and see what VAR says. Mm. And, you know, you, you seem to me, there will always be in football, we all know, it's not you, it's, uh, there'll always be decisions that are difficult. Mm. And there'll always be decisions that are... Uh, hotly disputed and sometimes are wrong um, and but I, I thought I thought in the first few seasons of VAR I thought we were doing quite well in rectifying a lot of bad errors but we've just just wondering if watching some of the games I've watched recently if it's and uh, we're not sometimes aren't too trigger happy yeah. there's been a lot of creep in VAR hasn't there because it was brought in for specific circumstances and scenarios, and it seems to have been just expanded without anybody sort of telling yeah. us or asking yeah. us. Yeah, well, that's inevitable. As the players get used to it, as the as the public gets used to it, as everybody gets used to it, then you'll use it more. Hmm. And you're right; it's crept, it's crept in. It's been used a lot more. When it started off, we all thought it was going to be used maybe twice a game or three times in a match. You know, yeah, but. Not, not now. Yeah, I, mean, I said this before on this podcast, but for me, it's brought in for like that uh, Terry Henry, Terry Henry incident against the Ireland in the, in the World Cup playoff, where everybody, apart from the referee, can see quite clearly that there's, that's <laughs> a foul. And as soon as the referee watches the video, he goes, "Oh no, I've got that wrong." And you've got the technology to show him that in that second, and for him to correct the error in the moment. And I think that's the kind of thing that was brought that's great. Up to correct. But then it's getting used for all these other wee things that yeah. we're struggling to see four or five replays in, and we're still trying to work out was that a foul? Was it? Should it be? No, I mean, on, 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 I, I absolutely agree with you there. On the question of bar, don't get me wrong, I've probably presented myself my own, uh, badly in the sense that by and large, I am in favour of bar. Mm. And the Thierry Henry or Frank Lampard's goal in the South African yeah, World yeah. Cup, you know, things like that are, that are so such obvious uh, injustices. They need to be cleared up. Uh, and VAR does that and does it well. I, I, on the whole, I think VAR is, you know, I would say, I would go so far as to say it's like 90% of the time it's doing a fantastic job, but there is that 10% where uh, I sometimes, I sometimes, uh, uh, 
wonder about, you know. Uh, all right, so moving on to some of the wee snippets on this, so the, these two news desk pages. There's a wee snippet here called Togetherness, and basically what this is, it's a list of players who were born in England, but were all at that time current Republic of Ireland internationals. Uh, Jim <laughs> McDonough and uh, Eamon O'Keefe of Everton, uh, Matt Lawson and Mick Robinson of Brighton, and uh, just name a couple of others, Jerry Murphy of Crystal Palace, uh, Gary Waddock, QPR, Tony Grealish of Luton. Yeah, well, I, I remember them all. <laughs> um, some of those players had terrific uh, uh, careers in uh, with the Irish team. Guys like um, uh, Tony Grealish, for example, who, who wasn't sort of like a, a front page or back page star player uh, in the first division in those days. But, you know, every time he turned up for Ireland, he gave fantastic performances. And he played alongside uh, Liam Brady and Jerry Daly. You remember the Manchester United player? And they were, you know, it was a very useful midfield, those three. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of skill uh, from Daly and uh, Brady and uh, a lot of uh, work rate and covering from Grealish. Uh, the same same sort of the same thing applied to players like Gary Bottle. He he played in uh, he played in Jack Jack Charlton's team at a certain point, and he was a very useful player. Yeah, I mean, you you'll have seen this sort of evolution of that uh, Irish national side, Paddy, from the years of sort of being no hopers for tournaments to obviously the Jack Charlton years where you were you were doing things at tournaments. To I guess it's going a bit back the way again in recent times. Yeah, we're back to being no hopers, it looks like. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, those were terrific days. Uh, those were terrific days. And they were, um, uh, you know, people uh, would often think that um, Jack Charlton was um, a bit rough and ready and a bit um, unsophisticated in his uh, approach. Uh, and maybe it was to some extent, but Jack knew knew his football. Mm. Jack knew his football. He knew um, he, he he could tell a good player from a bad player, no problems. Uh, and uh, he was a, he was also, uh, as we all know, a powerful figure and a commanding figure. And he got uh, he got the team to play really well. Uh, I, I remember. Well, this is just to to, to point out how different things were. In, in uh, 1988, when Ireland qualified for the European Championships, and it was their first appearance ever in a uh, finals, a big finals tournament. Um, in those days, like it never happened before, and the, the Irish, the Irish press corps uh, travelled around with the with the uh, uh, with the Irish team, and we would be staying in the, in the same hotel. Now that meant that on the day uh, on the day before. The Saturday before uh, Ireland uh, played England uh, in their opening game in uh, where was it? Dusseldorf, um, Jack Jack didn't couldn't be bothered. Well, it wasn't. It could be. Bothered. He didn't want to have the hassle of taking them off to the designated training ground. Uh, then right behind the hotel that the, we were all staying in, there was a pretty reasonable uh, football pitch. Right behind it, I, mean, I could stand on the, the balcony of my my hotel room, and I could see everything, and, and we all did, and we watched the last we watched an hour of Jack's training, uh, and it was amazing stuff because he he did he, 
he, you know, they talk about people working at set positions. Um, and, you know, he did, he did this for you. Uh, he said, right, lads, it's with 10 minutes to go. Well, one down, one nil down. We get a corner. Now, Ray Houghton, where are you going to stand? Where are you going to stand? And he said, no, you're not to stand there, lad. <laughs> and, and, and he said, get over there, you fucking idiot, you know. <laughs> and, uh, I, this is true, you see. And he went through several situations like that. But of course, the next day, it wasn't from a corner, but the next day the guy who won the game with a header was Ray Houghton. <laughs> <laughs> but also, after that game, um, uh, 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 and and this again, this is the sort of thing it, you, it does cannot happen today. Is you know the players all came back to the uh, hotel, and we all came back to the hotel, and we're all in the hotel, and we all had a, a drink together and a sing song, <laughs> all of us, and it went on for about two hours. And you know, and, and Jack was there in the middle with a big grin on, <laughs> ear to ear, grinning away, and he'd be. Um, Every now and again, and everybody was singing a song, and Jack would be asking, he was asking, I remember he was very fond of a song uh, that the Fury brothers were saying, um, Young Willie McBride. Where have you gone to, Young Willie McBride? And, and Jack kept asking for that to be sung as well. <laughs> but it, it was, you know, you know it's, it, it's not the same today. You don't get the same sort of access mm. to teams like that. Uh, all right, another couple of wee snippets uh, there. There's a wee bit there called Dad's Protégé, and it says uh, Mike Imlach is hoping he can follow his, in his father's footsteps. Uh, Mike is an 18-year-old left-back with Preston and, and the son of Stuart Imlach, who's a left-winger with Burry, Derby, Nottingham Forest, Luton, Coventry, Crystal Palace in Scotland. And uh, looking up his career, Mike made 52 starts and five sub-appearances in English League between 82 and 84. Uh, left Preston without making an appearance, signed for Leeds but didn't play there either. Made his debut with Peterborough, we played 53 times before four games with Tranmere Rovers. Uh, and, and of course, I'm aware of Stuart Imlach through um, his other son, uh, Gary's uh, terrific, uh, terrific book on him. Uh, My Father and Other Working Class Heroes, I think it was called. Yeah, I've, I've just finished reading that maybe about a month ago or something. It's an absolute fantastic read. It's- yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, you've got me on that one because I, I don't know that book, mm. right? no, I, I, yeah. I can't even remember M like very much. Yeah. It seems, it seems, uh, the pro- my problem is my memories are all oriented around Italian football for mm. obvious reasons. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a terrific book because he basically traces his father's career just after his father died. He goes and sort of traces his, his career um, through speaking to his former coaches and uh, teammates and things like that. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a really, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting read. It's about him kind of reconnecting with his dad as well, uh, as as well as a, a football biography as well. It's a really, it's a really good book. Uh, anything else you've seen there, uh, Andy? Well, there's um, so above that togetherness, one that we we spoke about is there is um, a bit about Sunday football. It says. There's been a lot of talk about the possibility of Sunday football, but one man who hopes it amounts to nothing more uh, than that is Swindon goalkeeper Jimmy Allen. He's the only player in the league who's intimated already that he would refuse to play on Sundays on moral or religious grounds. Now, I had a wee um, look about um, Jimmy, and he refused to play on a Sunday in January 1974, so this wasn't the first time that he'd actually 
uh, refused to play. So he refused in 1974 with his manager, uh, Les Allen, saying that he respected his views. So the manager says he respected his views, but he was then dropped <laughs> from the first team and didn't play again until the start of season 76-77. So I guess saying that I respect your views and then dropping you for a for a full season and a half isn't really backing up that, <laughs> is it? It's um, not really respecting the views. No, it? no. It's just, <laughs> I respect your views, but I don't respect you, so I'm dropping you. So maybe that's what you meant. Um, yeah, the, the, there's. I think there's other bits in this magazine about Sunday football, is there? Um, if I remember right. But um, I just thought that was quite interesting. I, re- I remember all right. I mean, the, the uh, if you were around in those days, it was a debate because mm-hmm. you would you were aware. One was aware that the. Uh, on continental Europe, there were big matches being played every Sunday, uh, and uh, you know people eventually, you know, in as as the media machine got bigger and bigger, as TV became more and more important, the question was more and more asked: Why don't we play on Sundays? You know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's it, it, it seems strange that people would have problems about it, but I mean, it it's, it was it was a generational thing because I mean. I grew up in Northern Ireland in the 50s and 60s, you know, and, you know, Northern Ireland on a a Sunday in the 50s and 60s, nothing was open. Everything was closed. Um, Mm -hmm. We had, uh, we had, we had horses. I grew up with horses and we had to exercise the horses. Uh, But my father would never let you take the horse out onto the public road on a Sunday. You couldn't do things like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, your Swindon goalkeeper was, uh, if it was Swindon Piper, he, yeah. he uh, you know, he wasn't alone. There are plenty of people who feel that it, Sunday was the Sabbath. You know, uh, six days they shall labour and the seventh they shall rest, you know. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, I, and sometimes, sometimes I think um, uh, a lot of today's players would be quite happy if they got a, a Sunday rest. Mm. Do you know, I've, I've actually thought about that recently. I don't know if maybe it was because of reading this, but I, I've thought that, you know, there is an argument just to don't have things open on a Sunday. Just, you know, yeah. have it as a, a day that a lot of people can rest. I mean, society's moved on and, you know, because, because a lot of people work, you know, Saturdays and things like that, maybe Sunday's the only time they can go shopping. But, you know, just I, I, I can get the, not from a religious point of view, but just from a general, everybody just relaxed point of view. And take also, it it, it, uh, one thing that if it's taught us anything, if there's been anything positive about COVID and the, the COVID pandemic, it is that people have learned, you know, that you can do without certain things. You can live a different life. You can live quietly. You mm. can spend a lot of time in your on your own, under, in your own, between your own walls uh, and in your, you know, not moving around. Yeah. And then it isn't necessarily uh, a bad thing. Yeah, totally agree. So just next day as well, Tom. I'm going to shoot. So Tom and I are Clyde Bank supporters, Paddy. So I'm going to shoot. <laughs> I'm going to shoehorn in a Clyde Bank reference. Um, so the Billy's problems talks about a broth centre half, Billy Wells, who's decided con- to continue his recently interrupted playing career with Clyde. Now, uh, Billy played in the eight-one record victory, Clyde Bank versus a broth. Um, so so that's the shoehorn. But also what yeah. I didn't know was that Jimmy Bone played for a broth that game as well. Is that the same Jimmy Bone? It would have been, yeah. He played yeah. for Celtic and Simmern. Yeah. So in Norwich City, he played for as yeah. well as well. But 
I, yeah, I didn't know that Jimmy Bone played in that game, but there we go. There's the Clyde Bank shoehorn of the week. <laughs> How are Clyde Bank doing at the moment? We're, we're, we're doing all right. Uh, we got beat last night, but um, we're, we're doing okay. We've got an SFA licence, which means we can play in the Scottish Cup, uh, the proper Scottish Cup. So we're going to be live on BBC Scotland in a few weeks' time, which is a big a big deal for us. Against uh, who? Against uh, Elgin City. So so we're in the West of Scotland Football League, which is what the, the sort of league below the Lowlands League. Uh, so we're on the path to trying to get back into senior football again. I don't know if you remember, Paddy, the, the days of Claybank uh, supposedly going to Dublin to, to play. Yeah, that was touted for for a period. Um, due what, to... that they would join the Irish League. Ah, well, because yeah, we had some rogue owners at the time who were who were wanting to uproot the team and move it to move it to Dublin. Not uh, long after Wimbledon, around about the same time when well, that was being talked about with Wimbledon as well. But they were still going to play in the Scottish League, though. Is that right? There were there were there was always there's always been talk about uh, exchanges between Ireland and Scotland on the, on the club front. Do you remember there was a period when Shamrock Rovers and others were. Uh, the idea was to take them to get them to play in the, the, the Scottish First Division. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I, those were the days where people like uh, you know John Giles, Eamon Dunphy, uh, uh, Paddy Mulligan, and others were playing for Shamrock Rovers. They had actually some very uh, experienced players. Mm. Uh, but anyway, same same thing. That's always been talked about. They, they, uh, Irish Scottish sort of. Uh, <laughs> Attempt to carry to um, what's the word? Create their own their own footballing empire remained <laughs> remains valid, you know. <laughs> it keeps on. I say it keeps on. It keeps on turning up as a possibility. An Irish Scottish World Cup, for example. <laughs> the charity partner this season is the West Dumbartonshire Community Food Share. This is a charitable organisation that provides various services and support to the local community, including the following. A school uniform bank, school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank, cooking and growing lessons and a baby bank. They provide essential support to the local community and supporting individuals and families and we will be looking to support them in any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money and support in the form of volunteers. We will also be raising awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do, but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are aware of these vital services. You can follow them on the West Dunbartonshire Community Food Share group on Facebook or westdunbartonshirecommunityfoodshare.co.uk for the website. And that's West Dunbartonshire with an N. You can also donate through our Just Giving page for the charity, at justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash shoot the breeze one word. Also keep an eye on our Twitter accounts at shoottb underscore podcast and at Scott's Footy Cards for updates and news on our charity partner. We'd like to say a special thank you to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah for the use of the story of the blues in the music for our show. You can catch up with Pete on petewiley.co.uk where you can check out the details of upcoming gigs and new music. We'd also like to thank our producer, Diane Jarden, for her great work and support on the podcast. Please check out transmissionroom.co.uk, where you can book music recording and rehearsal facilities in Clybank.
So, Andy, can we jump to page seven then? Yep. Uh, so, page seven is Tartan Talk with uh, Derek Johnson. Can I ask, Paddy, have you ever ghostwritten a column for a footballer? No. No. Oh, sorry, that's not true. Um, I did. Uh, for about three different World Cups, I ghost, uh, ghost wrote a column for Mark Lawrence. Right. Uh, um, uh, which was uh, very easy to do because Mark's a very easy guy to deal with. And he, uh, as, as anybody who's ever seen him in a match of the day, uh, knows he's not short of an opinion, and um, <laughs> and he was easy. He was easy to. He was very easy to deal with and talk to. So I know we became great friends. Mm. He was. He, he was. Um, he, I always look forward to the World Cup because of that. So this is a wee bit there, but uh, Derek Johnson talking about how Rangers missed the magic of Europe because uh, Rangers hadn't qualified for Europe that season. Uh, I've got to admit to feeling more than slightly envious when I watched the rerun of Graham, Graham Souness's marvellous three goals against CSKA Sofia uh, on my video recorder at home. And I think he's just bragging that he's got a, he's got a video recorder. Uh, and, he, and he goes on to talk oh, about... What year was that? So that was 1980-81 season. Yeah. So that's the season Liverpool would have been on to win the European Cup that season. And uh, I guess Rangers, uh, Rangers had failed to qualify. Yeah. Yeah, and and Sunes was playing for who was that? Uh, Liverpool. Ah, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you, you would have you would have seen Sunes with Sam Doria. Eh? He moved. To I like... did, yeah. I talked I talked to him a couple of times when he was out here. I always found him very, um, very, very. Again, another like good players. Often to me, I often think. I mean, you talk to them, you know, good players are smart, and mm-hmm. Graham was very smart, and he 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 um, made a lot of uh, good observations about. Um, the Italian football scene. My, my my only pity with him was I didn't get a lot of ch- time. I didn't get many occasions uh, to to get to know. Him. I'd like to have uh, been able to talk to him more. So yeah, so David Johnson is talking to me about here about talking uh, about playing against Johan Cruyff and uh, Ajax when uh, Rangers <laughs> played um, Ajax in the, the very first of unofficial European Super Cup. Yeah, what was what he say about Cruyff? He wasn't. He wasn't bad. He could play about that boy. <laughs> yeah. There seemed little or no room for manoeuvre until he whipped the ball over my head with a neat little flick, swept past me all in one breathtaking movement, and whacked an unstoppable shot past Big Peter McCloy at the near post. I didn't even bother offering excuses. I just witnessed something out of the ordinary, something only someone blessed with the skill of a Johan Cruyff could produce. Yeah. Well, I don't know how much you saw Cruyff play. Uh, but uh, he was capable of stuff like that. Yeah, he, he was uh, in in the same way that Maradona was capable of doing things that uh, ordinary players just wouldn't wouldn't dream of attempting. Yeah, uh, and then he was a phenomenal personality. Somebody had ideas about everything and knew what way he wanted the team organised, what way he wanted the club organised, and, and you know, and he was not a good person to to cross. Uh, because uh, he he would make it quite clear he didn't suffer fools. Mm. Um, he didn't suffer fools gladly. So we jump on now, Andy. Uh, can we go to page fourteen? Yep. Uh, so page fourteen is uh, headline: John walks it. So it's uh, John Walk winning the um, the players Player of the Year award. Can, can I just say uh, it's a missed opportunity for the title, isn't it? It should be John yeah. walks it. Truly. Yeah. That's a missed opportunity. Yeah. So yeah, a picture of John Watt there, and he's uh, he's Dickie Boat in dinner jacket, and uh, 
Picture of Gary Shaw of Aston Villa, who's a young player of the year. And uh, the special PFA Merit Award went to Swindon's John Trollope, who made a record 770 league appearances for his only club. Yeah, I, re- I remember. I don't remember him, but I remember the other two. I remember Wark in particular. Wark was essentially Ipswich Town in those days, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and he was a good player. Uh, and uh, he, he had a fantastic season. Was, was his Ipswich Town not uh, managed by Bobby Robson? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, and they, you know, it, it was Robson was at the beginning of a very, a very successful uh, career, um, and you know, well, he went on to become England manager and had a good England team too. That yeah, play badly in Mexico until it met Maradona. Didn't play badly in the 1990 World Cup, but you know, uh, he was. He, I'm sure. Uh, I don't know what Warp would say, but it would be interesting to. It, it, to know what he would, what he thought of uh, of uh, Bobby Robson. Mm. So did you spot Dicky Davies in the background there, Tom? Oh yeah, yeah. Awards? I see him. I see him now. Yeah, very unmistakable with his um his his badger streak in the hair. Yeah. So I uh, said about uh, John Trollope there. So uh, he made his debut via Halifax Town in 19, August nineteen sixty, and he played his last game for Swindon in November of nineteen eighty. Uh, and played a, a total of 889 times uh, for first one. That's a long career. In all competitions, yeah, absolutely. 20 years. Yeah. It's quite quite a striking-looking fella there as well, isn't he? With the, yeah. the blonde hair yeah. sort of slicked back and, you know, quite strong features. Uh, so the facing page there is Ray Clemens talking soccer. Uh, ecstasy and agony. So this is about the League Cup uh, final where they, they drew 1-1 with West Ham with the, with the game going to a replay. And, and this is the kind of thing I, I loved at the time when I bought when I bought Shoot, is, is getting things like, like that where, where you, you had the players giving you the wee inside on things like that, you know, going, you know, picking his, his way to die for penalty kicks and, uh, you know, talking about the referee and things like that. I thought I really thought that was that was great at, at the time when you were getting these kind of insights. From, you, from think, you think you get the same insights today? No, from... I don't. I don't think so. Yeah. No. Yeah. You know, um, I remember very well, obviously as a player, but um, one of the the, the, the privileges of uh, my career uh, as a, as, a, as a soccer reporter is I mean, I, I've been to about three World Cups, but I've been to about uh, seven European Championships. And um, at those things, you meet all sorts of people. I remember meeting Ray at uh, European Championships in Sweden in 1992, the ones that, that, that Denmark you know, came yeah. in off the beach to win. Uh, and uh, I had uh, I'd been listening to, uh, a few months before that, I'd been listening to... Uh, in it, I've been listening to the European, the, the, the what was the Champions Cup then uh, on the BBC uh, uh, on the World Service. And uh, it was Sampdoria and Barcelona, Barcelona won the Koeman free kick, mm. I think. Mm. But um, uh, there were, I, like, I, I found, you know, in those, in those days that there was no internet, there was, there was no satellite TV. And there were, so I, if you got something like the World Service, sometimes you got it and sometimes you didn't. So I, I tuned in and the match was already started. I was, and there, this fellow was commenting on the game 
And I was thinking, God, that's interesting. Yeah, that's it. Jeez, he knows what he's talking about. And it was Ray Clemens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember seeing him in, in, in Sweden, in, in Stockholm. And I told him that story. And he said, oh, <laughs> I said, we well, thanks very much. But I, I, I ought to know a bit about football. I've been playing it long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, right, okay, and we, we move on from here. Page 16, there's got a couple of wee Scottish uh, stories there. Uh, fast Flood and Clear Out at Dundee. So, uh, Fast Flood is... It's uh, just a coincidence we have all these Scottish stories, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, we, well, we find that the shoot uh, actually covered Scotland quite well. Uh, the, yeah, Scottish football was much more... Uh, was much stronger, mm. no? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was yeah in those days. Yeah, uh, there wasn't much between Scottish and English teams when they played when they played in Europe in those in those days. We still sort of expect the English team to to win, but there really wasn't much between. Yeah, but the first oh, okay, but I mean it's not for nothing at the first uh, British side to win the Champions Cup mm. uh, yeah. was 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 Celtic. Yeah. 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 Nineteen sixty-seven, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. So I mean that was before Liverpool put together all their uh, their titles, mm. yeah. before Nottingham Forest won it twice. I mean, it was a different world, uh, and Scottish football was a different world. Scottish football was a very serious uh, level of, uh, you know, obviously Scottish football still produces, uh, regularly produces good players, but it's not. It wouldn't. I can't see it as uh, as being in. The same level of competitiveness as as that was, as those days were. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think part of the reason why um, there's so much Scottish content in it is probably because there was so many Scottish players also in England, so there was more of a yeah. an interest yeah. to see what was potentially the next ones coming over the border. Well, well, you're right because in those days the only foreigners were either Irish or Scottish, mm-hmm. uh, and the old Welshmen. No, mm-hmm. they weren't. The, the, you weren't in the the Harlem Globetrotter All Stars days of the Premiership, where you have everybody from uh, all over the world yeah. playing in the Premiership. Yeah, and then the only foreigners were were the Scots and the Irish and the Welsh. Mm-hmm. I think th- this may have been the sort of time actually when it did start with Franz Tyson and stuff, probably Ipswich. Yeah, right? yeah, Franz Tyson, Arnold Muir, yeah. yeah. So I think that, yeah. that and then Spurs, obviously, with Ardilis and Via. When, but... when did when did Tyson and Muir arrive? So I want to say that was sort of mid eighties, no? Yeah, nineteen eighty. Yeah. Was you, it early You looking it up, Andy? Yeah. I I remember. No, I'm just remember, I remember Muir playing in. For Holland in the um, uh, nineteen eighty eight European Championship yeah. final, the one yep. where the, the Soviet Union, yeah, uh, he provided the pass for Van Basten's goal. He was exactly, exactly, good man. And, you know, fantastic pass, but he he was a fantastic player. But I can't remember how long he'd been playing in uh, English he, football. I suppose he, he'd been yeah. there for a while. You're going to be surprised. Nineteen seventy eight is when he came to Ipswich Town. Um, there you are. So, I am surprised. Mm. I mean, I he had a bit of a career with. Uh, he'd won the European Cup with Ajax uh, yeah. before that. And his, his brother, his brother before him, had, had won the European Cup with, with, with Ajax, and he went back to Ajax and he won the Cup Winners' Cup uh, with Ajax in his in his second spell. And like you say, he was playing at thirty-seven, I think, for for Holland. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah. So you, you had him and you had uh, 
via uh, Ricky Villa and uh, Ozzy Ardiles coming after the World mm. Cup in 78. So, yeah, yeah that was a, a sprinkle in the fall. That's right. That's right. That's right. Do you remember when Ozzy turned up uh, very early on? Um, I think he was playing in the League Cup game against uh, Liverpool. Uh, and um, what's his name? Uh, I've forgotten his name. The big uh, Liverpool central defender. Was it Tommy Smith? Tommy, right, Tommy Smith, yeah. Tommy Smith clattered into him quite early on in the game. And uh, it would have killed anybody else. But I mean, Ardili bounced on the ground and got himself up again and played on. <laughs> and uh, I remember the the... the the media asked Tommy, you know, what was what were you what were you doing with that tackle? What was the significance of that? She said, oh, I was just welding him to the, the first division. <laughs> yeah. Straight red card these days. Straight red card. So right. is there anything, Andy, from those two, John Floods moving from Sheffield United to Airdrie and... Uh, well, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just drawn to John Floods' f- f- picture. Um, and you know, if you had a choice nowadays, you, you wouldn't allow them to put that sort of picture of you. Um, it's, it's not the most flattering a picture, it looks almost as embarrassed by it. It looks like a school photo, actually. You know, it does, it does, yeah, it's got yeah. that sort of look. But yeah, um, he played for Airdrie, so you, um, Sheffield United, Airdrie, and Partick Thistle were the teams he played for. Um, Airdrie 251 games, um, but yeah, other than that. It was just a photograph that got me. <laughs> so we go to page 18 then. Uh, so page 18 is talking about how two former England defenders are tackling the tough job as managers. So it's uh, Norman Huntler, uh, Barnsley and Larry Lloyd at Wigan. Do you recall either of those? Right, oh, of those players? Nor- Norman, bite your legs. Yeah. I recall Norman well. And a very good player he was too. He wasn't just a bite your legs, he was a good footballer. Yeah. And those days are what I recall about those days was, uh, well, maybe a bit after, but say uh, 79, 80, uh, around that time. The, the sense that Enzo Berto, who was the Italian uh, coach at the time, uh, used to sort of look at some of the people who were playing in the English defence and say, hey, if you get nothing better than that, because guys, English defenders look to them to be very, uh, very basic. Mm. In a way, that Italian defenders are, are, are never basic. Yeah. And, you know, Italian football continues to, uh, in some senses, this, this, the strongest thing about Italian football has traditionally been and continues to be uh, the quality of their defenders. Mm. We saw, yeah. I mean, it, did, did you see Juventus against um, uh, Chelsea? Chelsea? You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, the clock was turned back. I think Chelsea had what sixty-five percent of the possession in an away match. You know, but it didn't make any difference. How many chances did the Juventus give them? Yeah. Did they have? Did they have even one good chance? Yeah. So yeah, so it's talking about Norman Hunters in the third division now. Uh, managing Barnsley and Larry Lloyd's become player manager at fourth division Wigan. Uh, I've had talks with Brian Clough and Peter Taylor about my future, and I'd made it clear that I didn't want to end my playing career in Forest Reserve side. 
I had to be honest and realise that they weren't going to build Forest Future around 32-year-old Larry Lloyd. Yeah. I think um, with these two, that the, there's, um, there's talk that the nature of the players they were is completely opposite to the types of managers they, they were, isn't it? Um, that Norman Hunter actually ended up you know, with a team that played good football. Yeah. And yeah, um, I think yeah. a lot of people were surprised by that, but, you know, he wasn't. Well, he was a good player. I mean, Norman wasn't, uh, he, he, okay, he was tough, but he wasn't a bad, he was by no means, he was a good football, mm. full stop. Mm. So, so he could get teams to play well doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Yeah, again, everybody we're talking about is dead. Norman's dead as well, isn't he? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right, okay, Andy. Well, we we move we move on then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so page twenty, I was going to look at. Yep. Uh, page twenty, the headline is the decision Bosco dreads. It's Bosco Jankovic, uh, who was at Middlesbrough at the time, and a, a rare uh, a rare foreign player uh, in English in English football at that at that time. What's the d- decision he dreads? <laughs> So uh, the career of Bosco Jankovic is at the crossroads. His contract with Middlesbrough ends this season and in May he must decide whether to stay in the country or return to his native Yugoslavia. Uh, and his, his final decision will be made with the precision of a qualified lawyer, which he is. <laughs> so apparently uh, Jankovic is a hero for uh, Aston Villa fans because he scored twice against Ipswich Town uh, when when uh, Villa and Ipswich were going for the title in, uh, in 1981. And that was that was what what um, pushed Villa ahead. Um, the the <laughs> Ipswich two one, uh, and so he's, he's apparently a hero to Aston Villa fans. Well, well, well good reason. <laughs> uh, but Jankovic must have been uh, very much. More, there were very few East European players in, uh, outside of East Europe in those days. Yeah, so nineteen seventy nine, he moved to to Middlesbrough. Yeah, but if he'd been um, a Soviet player, uh, he wouldn't have been able to move at all. I mean, it was because uh, you were talking about the Yugoslavia that he moved out of was uh, the Yugoslavia of Tito that was mm. by East European standards a bit uh, a bit more liberal, and it was certainly there was a certain amount of circulation of uh, well, nothing like European Union, but there was a there were, uh, the wall was slightly down. The Iron Curtain had a hole in uh, in those days. Yeah. So he, he passed away uh, in 1993 at the age of only 42 uh, of, of natural causes. Oh, yeah. It's nothing age, isn't it? Yeah. So, Andy, do you want to say something about that article facing the page there? Scotland's keepers on the attack. Thought that was good ball. Oh, Scotland's keepers. Well, at that point, it still would have been, um, still would have been Alan Ruff and probably Alan in the Ruff, yep. in the driving seat. But there would have been Jim Layton maybe coming through. George Wood would have still been there. Billy Thompson maybe. Yeah. And I guess that they're, they're looking at a few of the Roy Baines. But Roy Baines was English, is he not? Yeah, he was. Yeah. Um, so I guess they're not talking about the from a national sense. Yeah, I think they mentioned Paddy Bonner coming in there as well. So you know, I, I, it's a bit of a trope, isn't it, about um, Scottish goalkeepers? And I don't think it's really 
you know, I think there's some truth to it, but I think it's people just being a bit lazy. I think, you know, there's been some high-profile mistakes that they've made, but then again, there's some high... You look, you just look at some of the big competitions that England have been at, and the goalkeeper, you know, um, Rob Green made a, a howler. Um, so, yeah, it happens with goalkeepers, but I just think, you know, people have jumped on this whole idea that Scottish goalkeepers have been rubbish, whereas I actually think, in my lifetime, Scottish goalkeepers have maybe been better than and English goalkeepers, pound for pound, I mean. I mean, English goalkeepers, you've had Ray Clemens, you've had um, Peter Shelton, Joe Corrigan. Gordon uh, Banks. Gordon Banks. But other than that, really, I, I don't really, I can't really think of any that have been outstanding. I think I think Joe Hart could have been outstanding, but he, he I don't know what happened with him after Man City. But then Scotland have got Andy Gorham, we've got um, Alan McGregor. Uh, even... Um, David Marshall, I think, is is a top or was a top quality keeper. Maybe he's not quite at the same level now. But yeah, listen, I'm, I I will always fight the 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 goalkeeper's uh, corner, and especially if it's a Scottish goalkeeper. Like if Jim Layton, I will fight till my dying breath. I thought yeah. he was an outstanding goalkeeper. Um, yeah, he had a bit of a he's a good club career too, didn't he? Hmm. Yeah, he he had that he had a bit of a tough time down at Manchester. Alex Ferguson didn't do him any favours by dropping him. No. But yeah. he bounced back. Yeah. He came to Scotland and played on. But in terms of his ability as a goalkeeper, outstanding. So I will I will fight his corner every single day. Every but you day. can't you can't you can't have Packy Bonner as a, as a Scottish goalkeeper. Because he's Irish, lad. Yeah. Well, that, that's... Uh, you can't steal him now. You have to give him back. <laughs> I'll tell you, even I know a lot of Celtic supporters from that time who who be quite happy about that as well. If 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 they if you took him back, but um, I, I always thought Paddy Bonner was a, a terrific keeper. I always thought he was really solid. Um, yeah. Again, he made some mistakes. You know, sometimes he came for balls, dropped it, and things like that. But you know, the the technology that keepers have nowadays, the gloves and all that sort of stuff, and even the balls and the state of the pitches, you know, the pitches back then, mud, all that sort of really, you know, caked in mud, so it was difficult to, to, to it was, take, it was. take balls. Tell you something about Packy, though. Um, on the morning of uh, that that game I was talking about earlier, the 1988 opening round uh, England the Ireland game in, in, in Germany, um, uh, Packy was like a lot of players was worked up and ready for the game but he was getting very worried and he he, he went round to to see Jack in the hotel and banged in the door and Jack opened the door and said what oh, you want Packy you know and, and Packy walked in uh, and he said boss I you know my shoulders there's something wrong with my shoulder I can't play I can't play and uh, big Jack looked at him and he he went on oh, if I do this and I do that um <laughs> and Jack just looked at him for a long time and said, Oh, don't worry, Packy, you'll be all right. No, you <laughs> <laughs> of, of course, he played, there was nothing wrong with him. Yeah. <laughs> he, did, he had a great game, he was one of the heroes of that game. Yeah, brilliant. So, over the pace, we've got uh, goal lines, which is the, the letters to shoot. So, we're going to look at the, the star letter. So, the star letter is FIFA must tighten ruling. 
But uh, first of all, the th- thing you mentioned about the, the Star Letter, it'll mean nothing to you, Paddy, but this week's Star Letter comes from John Mackay of Hillington, Glasgow, who wins a special prize of £10. And John Mackay went on to be the premier sort of newsreader for Scotland Scotland Today, Scotland's sort of flagship 6 p <laughs> news show. And uh, we, we did tweet him to say, was this you who wrote this letter? They said, yes, it was. Um, but he can't remember what he did with the, with the, with the £10. <laughs> but uh, the letter goes, in recent years, the methods used to permit players to play for international teams have become farcical. We now have situations in which players qualify to play for national sides by virtue of the fact that their great-grandparents came from the country. Craig Johnson uh, yeah. of Middlesbrough actually had the opportunity to play for Scotland, England, Wales, Northern Ireland, ERA, South Africa or Australia. George Berry <laughs> of Wales could have played for any of the home nations or West Germany. Uh, yeah. I'm not attacking these players. If they have the chance, the best of luck to them. But I am appealing against the system that allows the situation to arise. Yeah, yeah. well, you could uh, you could start that one up again. Um, I mean, uh, one of the key figures in the Italian team who won the European Championships this year was um, Giorgino, who was, you know, he had the Italian grandfather, obviously, but uh, Italian lineage, but he's, he's not Italian. Mm-hmm. Likewise, uh, uh, Toloi in defence is not Italian. But, I mean, it was the same with the, with the uh, you know, it was Jack, Jack's success with Ireland was based on, uh, he, he looked around and, you know, um, uh, he went, I think he went, he went to Oxford United and yeah. found, found uh, he found Ray Houghton and um, he found the striker whose whose name escapes and John Aldridge. John Aldridge, yeah, exactly. He found the two of them. Uh, but you know the story about uh, about Ray. Um, I'm a, uh, I'm sure to a certain extent it's it's largely true, which is that uh, at some point now I can't remember the year because I, I wasn't there, but it was. At some point, uh, Ireland were playing, Ireland were drawing the same World Cup qualifying group as Scotland. And um, the Andy uh, Roxburgh was the Scotland manager at the time. Uh, And I think Ireland played very well in in Glasgow. They got a result. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. I don't know if they won, but certainly they got a result. And one of the outstanding players on the right was uh, Ray Howe. Um, and, you know, Ray, I, I, as I'm sure you know, was, he was not Irish. He had Irish yeah. blood in him, but he was Scots, uh, and very much so. And uh, uh, allegedly, uh, he said to uh, uh, Roxburgh said to him afterwards, you know, you should have been playing for us. And... Uh, um, uh, Houghton said, um, well, you you guys had your chance because he'd been rejected by uh, a Scottish club um, yeah. and the Scottish youth team at a certain point. Mm. I think that's happened a few times, isn't it? Lisa, was it did Aidan McGeady was he rejected? Yeah. Or did yeah. he just yeah. choose yeah. To, to play? Same but, thing, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the the, the Point your you your the letter writer is making is that you know it's ridiculous the people who who aren't a hundred percent. I have phone ring Lazbar just now. <laughs> right, somebody wants to speak to you. Yeah, badly. 
Yeah, so, so just on on the so on the letter there. I mean, he has John's at least saying, "Listen, it's the rules that need to change," and and that's what I guess the whole thing is that Jack Charlton did. Um, Craig Brown did it for Scotland. It's like if these are the rules, then we've got to we've got to use them to our advantage. Of course, yeah. There's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with that. But I mean, it's also uh, if you decide, uh, you can also argue that. Uh, looking for some sort of ethnic purity when it comes to picking mm. a team is uh, debatable, at least. You know? yeah. yeah, it's not It's not a great look, really, if you, if you stand back, is it? Saying that, no. Yeah. No, but it's, it's also people have got all sorts of, you know, maybe maybe, uh, maybe a majority of people have got only English parents or only Welsh parents and only Welsh grandparents and only Welsh great-grandparents. But... Uh, I would have thought they were probably a minority. If you look at people's uh, family trees, you don't have to go very far before, you know, um, another nationality slips in. Mm. And in the multinational and the multi-ethnic world we live in, that becomes more and more so, more and more the case day by day. Tom, should we jump to the focus on? Yes, let's let's do that. And then we'll just touch on one more... uh, on the magazine and get let you get away then, Paddy. So hand yeah, over to Andy yeah. for this bit. Right. So so what we're going to do is, if you remember the the focus on features in shoot where they would ask a footballer certain questions, and that's what we're going to do with yourself, Paddy. So I'm just going to fire some questions at you if you give me your answers. Uh, full name: Alexander Patrick Agnew. What's your birthplace? Uh, Ballymoney, County Derry, Northern Ireland. Okay. What was your first car? What was my first car? Yes. Oh, it was a Volkswagen Beetle. Very, very beat up Volkswagen Beetle. Mm. Okay. What's your favourite player of all time? Maradona. Favourite team? Uh, I find that one a hard one, but um, I, uh, if for personal reasons, I'd settle for the Napoli side, Maradona's Napoli side in the 1987 season. Okay. Um, what's the most memorable match that you've witnessed? Um, well, that would be that would be either the Italy's semi-final win in two thousand six against uh, Germany and Borussia in in Dortmund, or uh, the final against France. They okay. toss up between them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what's the best country that you visited? Uh, for football, just for, for pleasure, football. Just the best country that you've enjoyed. Um. Spain. Spent a lot of time in Spain over the years, and particularly Andalusia, right down the south of Spain. Love that. Mm. And I'm looking forward to this one. What's your favourite food? <laughs> uh, uh, I think I had my favourite food uh, at lunch lunch today, um, uh, which is a, a local pasta they make here. It's called lunguruchi. Mm. I had lunguruchi a guanciale. Guanciale is a type of bacon. Right. Uh, and then you know, there are tomatoes and onions and things as well and that yeah. is I can tell you lads is a very very good pasta yeah I knew I was going to like that answer <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, miscellaneous like so give me a couple of things that you like to do uh, a couple of things I like to do mm. uh, swim I live in uh, the Lago, on the Lago di Bracciano which is a lake and it's been a long hot wonderful summer and we swam a lot and I love that mm-hmm. and if you're a boy from Kilray in County Derry you know, I wasn't swimming in the lakes there. It was much too cold. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, miscellaneous dislikes. So a couple of things that drive you up the wall. Things that drive me up the wall. Mm. Um, my the only thing that drives me up the wall is my own forgetfulness as I get older. <laughs> okay, we'll take that for the two of them then. Um, what's your favorite? <laughs> what's your favorite TV show of all time? Favorite TV show? God knows. That's that's a. In this house, there's a lot of TVs watched. Um, my favorite TV show. It's very hard to know where to go there. Be uh, certainly um, the wife when she's feeling a bit uh, depressed loves to put on fr- old edition of Friends. You yeah. know that business people yeah. watching Friends. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I thought it was a very silly thing to do in a waste of time. And then of course I've sat down beside her and watched it. And <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit that it's it's a very good way to uh, yeah. unwind with some. Uh, non-violent, non-upsetting uh, uh, TV. Okay. Who's been the biggest influence on you? Huh. Uh, well, in professional terms, a man called Vincent Brown, who was the editor of McGill, who gave me my first job in journalism. When I was, uh, you know, uh, when, when uh, there was no reason to give me a good job, you had to be have a certain uh, notion that this guy could probably do a job for me. Hmm. I mean, I'd, 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 when I met Vincent, I'd been living in a cottage in the Wicklow Mountains on my own for three years, and the cottage was no running water, no toilet, no light, and uh, reading you know, John Dos Passos and War and Peace and Carlos uh, Castaneda and all sorts of things that nobody has ever heard of nowadays. But I, I was living a very, I lived a very strange life. I, I was very young at the time, but I just, uh, I was a complete dropout. And you remember the term dropout? Mm-hmm. Well, I was one. Um, and then I you know, decided to better drop in again and get a job and do some work. And um, Vincent Brown was one of the people who, I wrote letters to people and he was one of the people who replied. And he replied about six months late, but he replied. And mm-hmm. he, he got me started in journalism. Excellent. And I'm eternally grateful to him. Brilliant. Okay, last question. What and considering and some of the people who I know you've met, this is going to be a tough one. Which person in the world would you most like to meet? Which person in the world would I most like to meet? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a great question. Uh that's a great question. Um well I've I've met a lot of very interesting people. Mm. I mean I've met a lot of um, you know uh, three popes and kings and prime ministers and politicians have always because i haven't written i haven't my journalistic life hasn't just been about uh football um but if if uh i think if if uh, the person i most like to meet would be somebody it would be something very cliched like shakespeare but that'd be a bit hard mm. no it's okay we accept dead people as well so we'll go with that <laughs> and i have to say i got the best um message from tom about arranging this this um, podcast where he says Paddy can't do the show on the Wednesday because he's meeting the Pope, and I just thought like, okay, that's that's the best excuse ever for for not being able to meet well, the Pope. I wasn't quite meeting the Pope, but I was at a, 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 a meeting with the Irish President and the Pope. Right. I was uh, I was on the sidelines. So I wasn't part of the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, I'll hand back over to Tom. Thank you for the, for answering the questions. Back to you, Tom. Yep. Uh, thanks, Paddy. Well, I was only just going to just quickly just ask a wee bit about that, about about covering the covering the, the Vatican and uh, what just briefly what that 
entails for you and, and if uh, you know that actually gives you access to the various popes that there's been over the over the years well um i'm a northern protestant so i'm somebody arrived here and as a freelance journalist i was looking around for stories and the biggest story in town here is the fact that the pope lives in rome uh <laughs> and uh so i you know start to try and understand what's going on in the vatican uh, and I'm still trying to understand, but I mean, it's uh, it, access to popes. No, I have no access to popes. Um, uh, only a very small number of people have access to popes. But what what is true is that the following the Vatican is a remarkable, uh, is, is an extraordinary gig in the sense that every shaker and maker in the world, from you know, uh, from Madonna to Barack Obama to uh, Vladimir Putin turns up in the Vatican at some point, so you get a chance. You get a chance up from a distance, obviously, but you just get a, a sense of people, and that is that in journalistic terms is is uh, uh, fantastic, you know. Great. So we'll let you get away now, Paddy. If we can just you better, I'll, I'll I'll get I'll get my, I'll get I'll get roasted when I turn up <laughs> turn up late for training. <laughs> Can we just look at the man, the Maradona? There's a two-page spread, Maradona. I think it's the next pages, twenty-four and twenty-five. Just have a wee look at that, uh, Paddy, and then we'll let you get away. So Maradona, the four million dollar man. So there's pictures there of uh, Maradona playing football on the beach, relaxing yeah. with the family, sitting under under one of the old-fashioned hair dryers, yeah. uh, and playing Argentina. So you must have seen you must have seen Maradona. You've mentioned it earlier on playing uh, playing over the years in, in Italy. Yeah, yeah. No, Maradona was um, a mainstay of my uh, early years here uh, because he was so he was so fantastic. I would I would used to I would go down to in those days. I mean, I didn't have very much money in those days, uh, but I would still try and get down to Naples every now and again to see him play. I was there the day that uh, they won the championship for the first time in nineteen eighty-seven, uh, the season and and. Uh, they beat uh, Fiorentina, uh, and uh, I was done plenty of other occasions. But what, and what I remember, and everybody, would, nobody's going to contradict me, is that you know uh, he's one of those. He was one of those players who, uh, and there are not many of them, who could win games on his own, and he and he did it often enough for Napoli, and he did it for Argentina. Uh, and um, I, I remember, you know, everybody remembers his goal against England, uh, both yeah. the hand of God and, and the extraordinary second goal. But um, I remember before that tournament, uh, he started to train very hard and he started to get himself fit. And, you know, already there were stories about Maradona's lifestyle and how he wasn't training properly, wasn't fit. And I don't think he ever was uh except for a few brief periods in his, his professional career, absolutely 100% fit and ready for it. But one place where he was was Mexico uh, in 1986. He uh, went on a... He used to, come up to, he used to come up to Rome to have a particular um, Italian... Uh, uh, what we call a personal training these days, uh, put him through stuff. And he, he trained very, very hard. He was very, very fit. And the results were there in, in, in Mexico. Uh, and if he'd managed to uh, uh, live a life like that, 
Polo's career, it would have been something quite extraordinary. Oh, we'll, 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 let, we'll let you we'll let you go now, uh, Pat. Yeah, well, I'll get shot if I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate appreciate your time. Thanks for thanks very much for taking okay. the time to chat with us. Okay, lads. Okay, okay, okay. I appreciate your time. Yeah, I go. No problem. Tons Thank you, Paddy. Tons again. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank yeah, you, yeah, thanks, Paddy. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Cheers, bye. bye. So th- thanks to Paddy Agnew and thanks to everyone for listening. Make sure you follow the podcast and it's thanks to Tom for being Tom. Thank you, Andy. And as we say, follow the podcast, share with your friends, um, give us some feedback. Until the next time, let's shoot the breeze. <laughs>